the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This idea that you can find sacred fodder in philosophy is worthless. There's not a philosopher who's lived since Aristotle or Plato who can get you out of the ground on resurrection morning. I mean, this notion that somehow you can substitute true meaning and true life in Christ with theology and thinking is bankrupt on the judgment day. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko with just a little bit of what you'll hear today on Reaching Your Heart. Today's message is entitled, Naomi's Baby, Alive Again. At Reaching Your Heart, we believe God answers prayer. Won't you let us pray with you? The phone number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Please stay with me for just a few seconds after the broadcast today. We have a very special offer we'd like to give you. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko. In the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malchon and Kelon. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malhon and Kelon died so that the woman was bereft of her two sons and her husband. I mean, this is an amazing introduction to a story. I mean, the Bible simply says, in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. I mean, so much packed into that one phrase. Not only a famine for food, but a famine for spirituality and truth. A famine for God. The deepest kind of hunger is in the context. A famine for real community in the face of a moral breakdown, the collapse of society. The book of Judges ends with a terrible moral description of those days when people turned their back on God and His ways. No God-centered ethic in the book. No community of faith that's really cohesive. Only a secular individualism akin to our own today that brings anarchy, pain, and ruin. If you want to look where culture leads without God, just read the book of Judges, some of the most awful history in the Bible. And the Bible ends that book by saying, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We call that moral relativism. When anything goes because you're in charge of what's right and wrong, nothing is wrong in the end because somehow the sinful heart will find a way to justify the evil. If you think we are disconnected from the times of the judges, you know, it's only because our memory is short and you don't really know what's happening in the news. Have you been following this week? I mean, what an amazing series of events. Jihadi John took out his knife and beheaded British hostage Alan Henning. They kept their word, I guess. A United States vet who became a relief worker to help people in the Middle East is next on their list. I mean, ISIS is a satanic power in world history today. There's no way you can get around it. 
What's happening right now, we see the principles of Satan percolating in the world situation. It is the foretaste of what is coming to this country in the end of the world. And let us not forget that right here in our country, the same thing happened in Oklahoma. Hatred has no national identity. We are looking at a time when devils are afoot trying to change the world in which we live. And so it could be said in our time, every man did what was right in his own eyes. We are entering a time when evil is afoot and moving toward righteousness. So in verse 1, there's a paradox that deserves our attention. It was the harvest time, and the Bible simply says there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Uh, The Hebrew word Bethlehem means house of bread. It, It was associated geographically with Bethel, which means house of God, where Jacob saw that big ladder that went from where he was sleeping all the way up, and God made that promise to be with him. It was the last city Jacob's wife ever visited, Rachel ever saw before she died at Bethlehem. And I guess wherever there is a connection between a house of God and God's leading to find food for His people, you have to name that place House of Bread. And so Bethlehem earns its name. The names are also significant in this story. Elimelech means my God is king, yet oddly he is first to die. Malhon and Kelon, their names are descriptive of people who are cut off from God. They simply mean blotted out and perished. Amazing names in an era of history when you could have named them something positive. These boys have names which end up being prophetic of their future. So what do you do when you're face down the mud and discouraged in life? That's where Naomi is. She can't sort through the mess that's percolating her existence. What happens when your family is in ruins? And you've tried to hold your family together. What happens when you are in ruins and you're supposed to be leading? What happens when the experts can't help you anymore with your problems and you have nowhere to go financially and emotionally? Maybe you're not there, and I hope you're not. But friend, you could be there. It's only a thread of security that holds us from this kind of outcome in human history. When the shadows of life have overcome you and days are dark, what happens to you? When overcome with grief and guilt, I believe you must retrace your footsteps back to the place where you knew that God was God. I mean, you know in your own life, if you had a relationship with God in the past and things have gone south and it's sour now, you know you can go back and back then you knew. There are times in life when you have to retrace and go back to the place you knew that God was God. It's okay to go back if back is the place you need to be to go forward. And when overcome with sorrow and tempted to throw your faith away, friend, cling to the hand that feeds you, that has fed you. Cling to the God of the shadows. In scene one, we find Naomi making a beeline back to the house of bread where she remembers that God has food for the hungry soul. I mean, you know, this notion, I'm just going to vent here a little bit. This idea that you can find sacred fodder in philosophy is worthless. There's not a philosopher who's lived since Aristotle or Plato who can get you out of the ground on resurrection morning. I mean, this notion that somehow you can substitute true meaning and true life in Christ with theology and thinking is bankrupt on the judgment day. And friend, this notion that somehow by spinning your own tail and having your own outcome determined by a good financial management plan is good enough for the judgment day. It will not balance the books when Jesus Christ returns. Friends, you need a righteousness that can stand the test of difficult and dark days that your life can be found in Christ on the last day. 
And so Naomi, in a way, is typical of God's people at the very end. People who have been testing with this, doing that, and have lost their moorings in the Word of God. We need to go back to the house of bread. Verse 6, the text reads, Then she started with her daughters to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. For Naomi, her journey back was at the time of the spring barley harvest. In, in ancient Israel, the barley harvest coincided with the Passover and the celebration of the Exodus when God redeemed his people from slavery and he fed them with manna from heaven. For every year that they were to gather together at Passover time, they were to remember that God had taken them out of Egypt, that he had rescued them, that he had then given them the sacred bread from heaven. And as they gathered and they worshiped together, they knew that the God of the past was still present with them. But for 10 years, Naomi and her sons had fed themselves on the fading fortune of a pagan culture. And now sick and tired of eating out of the secular humanist trash cans of Moab, she wanted bread from her own land. God's land, God's bread. She wanted to go home to God. And friend, if you're there in your life today, that's a good place to be. If you are just tired of hearing stuff that is not from God's word, then it's okay to come home to the church and hear the word of God, the food that saves you. She wanted that kind of food. So in the story, she makes a beeline back to the house of bread, hoping that maybe, just maybe, there'll be a few morsels of real bread and other kind of bread left for a widow in the house of bread, God's house. In the verse that follows, she tries to send Ruth and Orpha away to remarry and begin their lives anew in their own land. They're not part of her land. You know, they come from a different culture. And thinking of them, she says, well, just go back to your people. I'm going back to mine. Our lives will part now. Naomi's reasoning is powerful in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I left sons in my womb? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I mean, life back then was rotated around how many children you have. If you didn't have kids, your life came to an end. You had no future. Of course, the answer to this question is obvious, no. There's an interesting wordplay used here. The word used for womb in the Hebrew sounds almost identical to the word for grain. An empty ma'e, womb, means an empty harvest of ma'a, grain. Simply stated, a barren womb means a barren harvest. No grain for Naomi. No sons, no daughters, no seasons for life. No hope for her, it seems. No spring, only wilted flowers instead of the fresh bud of life. In verse 22, we read, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so scene one ends and Naomi is home again, a beggar in the house of bread. You know, that's not too bad. If you're a beggar in the house of bread and you've come home to God, it's better to be there than to be wealthy out there going to ruin. So she's where she needs to be. In scene two, our heroine discovers that there are wings of refuge in the house of God. Chapter two, verse one, the text reads, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz is a rare name in the Bible. It seems to carry the basic idea of strength. The only other usage of this name is 1 Kings 3.21. In this verse, it is a name given to one of the two bronze pillars which stood at the door of Solomon's temple. Many scholars believe that these two pillars together, in relationship to the door, represented the tree of life. 
One thing is clear from the context. Boaz is a tree of life and hope for a broken woman without a family. He is a pillar in God's temple for a woman who has lost her vital connection with heaven. I mean, let's face it. God doesn't want you coming to church so you can just stay immature the rest of your life. As you weather your difficulties and as you are settled into the church culture, it is God's will that you grow up and you become a mentor, a source of strength for others. And Boaz had made that journey from weakness to strength. He lived for others, not for himself, to edify the body. So as the story unfolds, Ruth decides to go begging for grain for her mother-in-law in the fields of Boaz. A providential decision it was. And she is picking up the sheaves besides the workers, but here she is working, and Boaz suddenly notices her and asks his servants the question, Who is she? When his workers tell her that she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, he instantly understands that God is doing something here, and so he begins to interface with the need. In Ruth 2.12, Boaz treats her with dignity. He shares the gospel with her. He welcomes her into the family of faith. Now, he's a perfect example of what a greeter ought to be. He doesn't say, well, why are you here? What are you doing in our church? What kind of problems did you bring here? You know, that kind of thing. Why aren't you dressed the way everybody else is? He doesn't say that. He wants her there. I mean, he knows she's a Moabitess. Now, a Moabite is not the kind of person you want in your holy realm back then. They were enemies of Israel. He doesn't care. He sees an opportunity for this person to become a member of the sacred faith, not someone kept out. He says, the Lord recompense you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. An amazing statement to an unbeliever. Yes, the Bible is clear. Not only the outcast and the forsaken find food in the house of bread, there is also a refuge and shelter for those who would normally not belong under the wings of the Almighty. The figure of speech reminds us today of the wings of a bird. But to the ancient Israelites, it was simply a metaphor that meant something much more profound. It alluded to two things in particular. First, it was an expression of faith in the God of the Exodus. It captured the words of Moses as God described his deliverance of his people from Egypt. Exodus 19.4, God is speaking, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know, I, I want to be carried in life. What about you? I want to be carried. I want to be carried on eagles' wings, God's wings, from slavery to freedom. You can't get there unless God carries you there. And so this picture, the words that, that Boaz is adopting here, these words are a description of what has happened in the past. Secondly, it was also an affirmation of faith in the God of the shadows. In the most holy place of the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant dwelt in total darkness. And shielded in that darkness, the light of God's glory shone from between the wings of the cherubim. That was the most sacred spot in the Hebrew sanctuary on the holy mountain. Turn with me to 1 Kings 8 verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has set the sun in the heavens, but he has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built thee an exalted house, a place for thee to dwell in forever. God dwelt in the shadows in the sanctuary. He was the God of the shadows. And whenever you read about the wings of the Lord in Psalms 91, it is an allusion to the wings of the Ark of the Covenant where God is enthroned. Under his wings we find refuge in the final time of trouble. That means in his pavilion, in the sanctuary, in the most holy place by faith, covered by the wings. 
Hope, friend, hope in God is the thing with wings that makes the soul to fly. So Boaz's message is simple and yet profound. A one-sentence statement of the gospel. Yes, Ruth, tell Naomi that God still acts in human history and that his story is her story too. Tell her that God has an exodus today from famine and slavery. Tell her that God is the God of the living and the dead, but more significantly for her, the God of the living. Yes, Ruth, tell Naomi that the God of the shadows is shielding her under his wings. Tell Naomi, tell her now. In Ruth 2.20, Ruth returns and shares the gospel according to Boaz with her mother-in-law. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest of kin. And suddenly the frowning lady is a smiling lady. You are listening to Reaching Your Heart. We'll continue with Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message in just a moment. But first, do you want to understand the Bible better? Do you have difficult questions? Have you ever wondered, if God is so good, why do we live in such a bad world? What does the future hold? We know that you'll find answers in these new in-depth, full-color Bible study guides available for you with a donation of any size supporting this ministry. The phone number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Call now. Now more with Pastor Michael Oxentenko. In scene three, which we now transition to, Naomi finds a kinsman redeemer in the house of bread. In ancient Israel, God made a special provision for widows who did not have children so that they could preserve the family name. He ordained that a kinsman redeemer, a goel in Hebrew, kinsman redeemer, the closest of kin would take the widow for wife and raise up children in the name of her dead husband so that name would not be removed from Israel. It was a way of living on when circumstances had brought a family line to an end. And through him, she would live on and have a future. Now, there were obvious liabilities to this kind of thing. Namely, it meant that the next of kin would have to provide for more than one family member. And that was tough in ancient times. There were deadbeat dads back then just like there are today. So the entry continues in Ruth 3, verse 1 to 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek a home for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maidens you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Isn't this story kind of earthy? It is. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, I'm not going to go into the graphic imagery here, but the word feet is a euphemism for other parts of the body. We know this from Isaiah chapter 4. This is the time of the judges. This is not the time that we live in. This is the time when every man did what's right in his own eyes. And Naomi is doing what's right in her eyes. She believes the Lord's directing her course of her future. She wants her daughter to kind of hook up here. And she's not yet back home with all her thinking. So as the sun sets and the workers find their way to their own beds, a lone, solitary soul crosses the threshold in the cool of the night. A rustle, a howl in the night, and Boaz stirs. And the shadowy phantom merges with the bags of barley stacked beside the threshing floor. 
Sure, his meal is working against him. His fears are the result of overwork. Boaz settles to sleep and slips into a comatose state of snoring. Suddenly, a cold, clammy hand is felt beneath the cover, grabbing his feet as he awakens to encounter his foe. Is it a vicious beast ready to attack? Perhaps an assassin stands poised to steal his fortune. No. To his horror and delight, it's a woman. And of all women, it's the virtuous Ruth. Even more shocking than the surprise is her request. Look at verse 9. I mean, this is like a soap opera, isn't it? Who says the Bible has boring stories? I'm just reading it the way it is. This is in the Bible. And notice verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your skirt over your maidservant, for you're next of kin. Now, that's earthy language. Evidently, this was an ancient form of proposing for marriage right now. In the Hebrew, she literally is asking Boaz to spread his wing over her. Now, you've heard that before in the story here. Spread your wing over me, she says. In other words, I don't know much about God, Boaz. Sure, you've told me that under his wings there is refuge. But Naomi tells me that you are his wings. What do you say, Boaz? Will you cover me with your wings? I don't know if this is holy boldness or not. It's just boldness, probably. But in any case, it worked. Boaz replies in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a kinsman. Yet there is one nearer than I. Remain this night and in the morning. If he will do the part of the next of kin for you. You see, Boaz is a moral man. He doesn't take advantage of her. If he'll do the part of the next of kin for you, well, let him do it. So he's a moral man. But if he is not willing to do the part of the next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will do the part of the next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So he is a man of self-control, of principle, who is not willing to do things in a wrong kind of way. The following morning, Boaz loads Ruth up with barley and sends her home to Naomi. Now, this is not just food. It's a symbol of something. There, greeting her at the door and chewing on her fingernails with suspense is the strategist that General David Petraeus would be jealous of any day. Waiting in more suspense than any sin-sick soap opera could ever invent. I think all my children, I I went on Google and I, I looked at Wikipedia for all the current soap operas. I have a sense of them in my memory, but I think all my children are still playing, right? Well, you don't know. Good. I don't watch them either, but I was just checking it out. And as the world turned, Ruth turned to her mother-in-law to tell her about the young and the restless. And Naomi, of course, couldn't wait to ask about all the days of her life and all her children, I guess, that haven't been born yet, but could be. I mean, this is what's happening in this story. This is a soap opera from God's perspective that ends with a holy outcome. It's not, it's not foolish stuff. Her answer in verse 17 meant nothing to Ruth, but it meant everything to Naomi. It is just the thing that Naomi is hoping for. Ruth replies, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Yes, grain. Grain for the bosom of the woman with no harvest. Ma'e, grain, that wordplay for the woman with an empty tomb. Ma'a. An empty womb, which is an empty tomb for her. Yes, it's springtime, Naomi, and there's hope for you. There's life for you, and there's a harvest for you. And most of all, there is light at the end of the tunnel, for there is indeed a God of the shadows. Go tell Naomi. And under his wings, Boaz has offered Naomi a refuge. Tell her that. Naomi had no doubt that Boaz was a pillar in the temple of God, for he had agreed to be her kinsman redeemer. 
Boaz didn't spare any time taking care of the matter. The next day, he met the only rival to his claim at the gate and reminded him of all the responsibilities of raising someone else's child, being married to a pesky Moabite, of IRAs and child care and health care costs and Social Security service agents breathing down your neck. The man's reaction was a very predictable one. Then the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And well, Boaz says, if you insist, I guess I'll have to marry Ruth. While on the inside, Boaz was bursting at the seams, ready to explode with joy. Yes, I have the woman of my dreams because she's God's providence in my life. The maiden is mine. And before it was all said and done that day, Boaz bought the field from Naomi and accepted Ruth as his wife. And the other guy walked away quite satisfied that he didn't get shafted with an ugly Moabite hag and costly child payments to Naomi. In scene four, we find in the house of bread that there is hope for the living and the dead. With Naomi's baby, not Ruth's, Naomi's baby, Naomi has discovered that she can live again. Ruth 4, 13 to 17, the Bible says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and there the Lord gave her conception And she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who loves you more than sons and daughters, has borne him. And notice the punchline in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom. Ma'ah. The word play on, on the word grain, ma'e, ma'e, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We pray this broadcast has ministered to you today. When you support this ministry with a donation of any size, we'll send you the book, Soul Care Becoming Whole in a Broken World. 888-244-HOPE. Soul Care is a small 64-page volume filled with practical information on how you can grow as a Christian and even thrive in the tough times ahead. Call now for your copy. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Please stop by the website reachingyourheart.com to listen to this message again. That's reachingyourheart.com. We hope you'll join us again next time here on Reaching Your Heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.